I'm really glad that we actually sung Amari Fortress as our God because as I was writing my sermon, this song was just kind of like in my head the whole time. Because I really do feel like as you read through First Peter, it's almost hang on, I'm gonna turn my mic on, my bad. Uh, it doesn't ever quite Something fell out. Something fell out. Yeah. Oh, I don't think I need that. <laughs> it's not turning on there. There we go. Yeah, and I'm really glad that we sung that song just because um, First Peter really does uh, sound a lot like a mighty fortress. Uh, the message we get from that and the message of the New Testament is really so in through the lyrics of it. I really would encourage you, I know there's some old words in there, really just get a dictionary out and work out what Martin Luther is saying in that because it is a powerful song. And the main part, the main reason why it's powerful is because it tells a story. And stories and narratives, uh, they're like a universal language to humans. Now, there's a reason why the Bible is 76% narrative and poetry. Uh, the scriptures paint vivid pictures. They tell compelling stories to engage and challenge humans. Uh, sometimes these stories invoke feelings of wonder and awe, and other times, if we're honest, sometimes a bit of disgust and even a little bit of fear. Uh, yet the Bible doesn't merely tell stories because that's how we best learn. The Bible tells stories because everything is story. We love stories because the entire universe is built to tell a story. The one true story that all other stories derive meaning from is the story we find in the pages of Scripture. Even in our very lives, every single one of us lives separate stories. Have you ever kind of walked down a street and there's like heaps and heaps of people there, and then you come to the realization that every single one of those people have their own unique story, and every single one of those people are the protagonist in every single one of their stories. And yet God, in his infinite glory, weaves all these individual stories so tightly together as to tell one big story across all eons and millennia. Thankfully, we are not the protagonists of this one big story. We're kind of a supporting cast to the one to whom all knees shall bow. Every Sunday night, one of my favorite theologians, Doug Wilson, has his grandchildren go through a round of catechism questions. The last question he asks is this, kids, what is the point of the whole Bible? And this is the answer that they have to repeat. Kill the dragon, get the girl. This cute answer is actually more accurate than you think at first. This is the whole task that Adam was given in the garden before the fall. This is before sinners entered into humanity. Their whole, the whole task of Adam was to kill the dragon. He had a dragon to fight in that garden. He had a girl to save, and as we know, he failed miserably at that task. And this task has become treacherous and arduous ever since. And this task is stretched out across millennia. And yet God gave us a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the head of the serpent would be crushed, that the dragon will be slain under the feet of the woman's seed. And that slippery, cunning dragon, the greatest of all villains, will be killed. And that Jesus will have the girl, his bride, the church. Today in our passage, Peter is going to remind us where we sit in God's great plan. We are not forsaken as exiles. Our stories are not written in some other book. Nor are we abandoned in our trials to failure and defeat. 
God's people are given a grace and a story that causes all of heaven to stand in wonder and awe. And I'm not overstating it. So my first point, God has a plan for history. My second point, God's plan is for the whole of history. And my third point is that God's plan transforms history. So my first point, God has a plan for history. Let's get into our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. You have your Bibles over here, good time to turn to that. I'm going to start with the first two verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, last week we saw in Peter that our story is not one of misery and defeat, but one of joy and glory in the midst of trial. And while the world seeks glory and honor and praise from men, the Christian is in the business of seeking the only glory that comes from God. The Christian wants nothing more than to hear from their Heavenly Father, Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And Peter says that this salvation was foretold by the prophets. And the first question that probably pops into your mind is this, who are these prophets that Peter is talking about? Now, these prophets are the Old Testament prophets, men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to do and say extraordinary things. Through the Holy Spirit, they proclaim the very words of God to the people, warning sometimes of judgment and also giving hope to those people. And their most important duty was for telling the salvation that was to come in Christ. That was their most important task that they were given to. And this salvation, this grace, Peter says, was to be yours. Now this must have felt surreal to those Jewish men and women in this dispersion. Exile, suffering, uh, uncertain about the future. Their heroes, the men they read every Saturday in the synagogue, growing up, hearing their tales from the time that they could understand those heroes were writing for them. Imagine for a second finding that out. That you were the key audience of those prophets. Now Peter says that they searched and inquired carefully, emphasizing in Greek the fervor with which they looked into these matters. It's like a miner diligently breaking up the earth, trying to find gold or gems, precious stones. So also did these prophets pour over the writings of the Old Testament, even going through their own prophecies and trying to find out when was Christ to come. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 17, But truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Despite their privileged connection to God and their great wisdom and skill, none of the prophets ever found out in their lifetime when the Christ would come or who it would be. The irony is that the Jews, who were waiting for the fulfillment of these prophecies, could not see or hear the very story that God was telling them in front of them when Christ did come. 
But they sat pouring through the scriptures, seeking salvation and eternal life through them. And then when Christ showed up and he was there in front of them, they could not hear him and they did not want to see him. They stumbled over a phrase. And the phrase is some of the word that Peter uses here, the sufferings of Christ. That's what shook them up. That's what caused them all this grief. That would have sounded crazy to most ancient ears. To the ancient world, victory, subsequent glories come in the form of crushing your enemies under your feet. Not suffering and definitely not dying to your enemies, not being defeated by them. This expectation was so ingrained in both Israel and Rome that the idea of a Messiah suffering at the hands of their enemy was insane. That's not how stories are supposed to go. And yet the prophets predicted that the Messiah would indeed suffer and receive this very interesting phrase, subsequent glories. Very important phrase, literally in Greek, the afterglories. It shouldn't be a shock to a first century Jew. The prophets knew that God's plan required his servant to suffer. It's all throughout the Bible. From the very first prophecy of the Messiah, crushing the head of the serpent, what else, what else happened to him? He was struck on the heel. If you guys know anything about a, a snake, that's generally where they go for. And if you get bit by one in the ancient world, that's it. You're dead. I mean, have a look at the words of prophet Isaiah, chapter 52. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at him, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Do you see how in, this is just one example of many in the Old Testament, of the sufferings of Christ leading to subsequent glories. And there's this process that suffering leads to glory. It's this paradox we find within the scriptures that this is the very way that the Messiah will sprinkle the nations. The ancient world didn't understand that this suffering of Christ would actually crush his enemies, that he would place the kings and nations under his feet, not through the end of a sword, but through the preaching of a message. Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Love that language. The God of peace will crush. The God of peace crushes. The ancients did get something right, and that is that God would crush his enemies under his feet. How's that going to help me then? How does that work? I'm sorry, I want to be open. Yes, uh, that's totally fine. If you listen, I'll, uh, I'll help explain. God. Uh, Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so if you look at that language, the God of peace crushing, the ancients got it right in the sense that God would crush his enemies. But how would God crush his enemies under his feet? That's what this phrase, subsequent glories, is getting at. It is the glories of the victor after crushing his enemy in battle and parading them through the streets. Listen to this triumphant language in Colossians 2.15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 
Listen to that language. That's the language of a victorious army uh, triumphing and parading their enemies through the street. Jesus is going to kill the dragon. In fact, he has already struck a fatal blow and his enemy is routed. They are put to open shame. And while that slippery serpent still slithers across the earth, the story is not done. And that story continues with us. That's my second point. God's plan is for the whole of history. Let's keep reading verse 12. Peter says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you. And push pause there. Notice that God's plan spans generations, and it spans peoples, and it spans nations. And this is hard for us to understand. Because we are not a people who are connected to our history. Most of us don't know the names of our great-grandparents. If you do, I'll be impressed. So quickly is our history gone. So quickly are our stories lost. And so quickly are our people forgotten. We are disconnected from our past and we are disengaged from our future. But praise be to God that He is not this way. That his plan is multi-generational, multinational, and universal. I mean, look at the prophets here. They were serving a generation that was yet to be born. They were prophesying to a generation that they would never see. They would never, ever live to see the glories of this Christ, and yet they were not lazy in proclaiming this grace, despite many sufferings and trials. They did not grow weary in their zeal, nor did they have a big sook or a pity party about how unfair it was that their future generations would enjoy the fruit of their labor. As the old Greek proverb goes, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never see. If their patience was so great in their service of us, how ungrateful would we be if our courage faltered and our faith crumbled under all the trials we must endure when we have given, been given so much grace from God? Think about, for a second, how amazing the treasure trove of grace the churches here, just in what Peter is talking to, have received. Think about how much more glory we have. Do you know what the church, these churches didn't have? They didn't have the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They had here, first Peter, maybe a couple of the other epistles. But we have all the epistles of the New Testament from Acts to Revelation, written in plain English in front of us, something they would never have even dreamed of possessing. Along with all the commentaries and wealth of theology passed down by the giants of the faith from antiquity until now, we have the early church fathers, our Reformation heritage, the writings of incredibly gifted men and women. And I'm just so blown away by the grace we have and then I start to think a little bit more, and honestly, I tremble. Because Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The weight of everyone behind us, Hebrews calls them the great cloud of witnesses, who have served both their time and us, that weight pushes us forward to move the ball one tackle foot further to the tri-line. Our great task of discipling the nations 
has been passed down to us by those who have gone before us. Are we preparing ourselves for this task? Are we even preparing our children for this task? C.S. Lewis says, Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. I actually disagree with Lewis here. I don't think it's just children who need these stories. I think we all need these stories. We all need stories both of heroic saints and valiant knights. We all need to hear about the brave knight slaying the dragon and getting the girl. The author, Rachel Jankovich, wrote a Facebook post, and she planned to go, she lives in America, to protest outside a Planned Parenthood clinic, America's largest abortion provider. And here's what her Facebook post said. As our kids were getting ready to go, finding their productive conception shirt, grabbing water bottles, etc., Shadrach realized that he didn't have a protest shirt. This is because I made him one that said, hashtag another boy on it for the last protest. But threw it away afterwards because it was an old undershirt. So I grabbed some Sharpies and said that I would make him a new one on another older undershirt. He watched me as I wrote, life is a good choice on his shirt, and we talked about what was going on. I told him that there were people who thought it was okay to kill babies while they were in their mother's tummy. I told him that we were going to say no. He asked me some insightful three-year-old questions. There are people killing babies? Is God there? People are killing babies? They is killing babies. Later, thinking he had gotten into the van already, I found him in the garage rummaging around. I asked him what he was up to. And he said, Mama, I need to find my sword. I think we have a lot to learn from the bravery of this little brother. God's story for humanity is not some abstract idea. It's not intangible. It's not vague. It's here, right now. And he is telling his story among us. In the lives of ordinary people like you and me. And that story transforms us. It compels us. It pushes us forward. And it transforms us. And that's my third point. God's plan transforms history. Let's finish the last verse. Verse 12. Let's read it again. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The work of the gospel is demonstrated in the hearts of men and women transformed by the Holy Spirit. As the work of God becomes manifest in whole households, who bend the knee to Christ, to his rule and reign, being reborn by the Spirit into the image of his Son. Did you know that in our great task we have a very eager audience? There are people, there are beings looking on. And those beings, Peter says, are angels. They are eagerly looking into the salvation that is ours. Matthew Henry says this. He says, The mysteries of the gospel and the methods of man's salvation are so glorious that the blessed angels earnestly desire to look into them. They are curious, accurate, and industrious in prying into them. 
they consider the whole scheme of man's redemption with deep attention and admiration. See, the gospel is simply more than a message of how you get saved. And more about how the gospel brings all things under the feet of Christ. As Calvin says, the angels anxiously desire to see the kingdom of Christ, the living image of which is set forth in the gospel. That is to say, the angels love watching the greatest story ever told, told by the master storyteller, so intricate in detail and so mind-blowing in scale that the angels can't get enough of it. They long to look at it. They eagerly look where the Holy Spirit is at work, renewing men and women, families and communities, cities and nations, whole areas bringing everything into accordance with Christ by the indwelling Spirit, starting at first with individuals, then communities, and then nations. And he's encouraging the church that all their toil, that all their strife and their sacrifice, and all the things that they are going through for the cause of the gospel is not in vain. Their suffering is leading to joy and to glory inexpressible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's ever a verse to put up on your wall, it's that one. Our church has been left with this great task. What is it? Kill the dragon, get the girl. There are serpents who need a good stomping. There are saints who need to be brought into the bride of Christ. There will be suffering for us if we choose to enter this battle against this great foe, and yet for every gram of suffering you put in, you will reap a kilogram of glory. Paul reminds us here, the things that we are doing are not unimportant. There is a heavenly host longing to look into this story that God is telling, and he is telling the story here right now. So what is, our, what is our calling here, Christian? Are we going to continue to make the Christian life just a simple formula of pray, read your Bible, and go to church? Is that all God has for us? He has a lot more, doesn't he? Those are the necessary foundations to build a holy and wise life, but they are not the point. This foundation of reading your Bible, praying, going to church is your basic training to make you a potent soldier in the hands of God. Will we announce the message of the gospel, disciple the nation? Will we teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us? Or will we exit stage right? Will we say, we don't want any part in this story? We don't want any part in what God is doing. We don't want the suffering. We don't want the trial. We just want to give up. Have you ever read a story that just captivated you, where the main character, when things got hard, gave up, and that was the end of the story? Why would we want that to be the story of our life? Friends, Peter is writing here to encourage This whole thing, read it again. What is in this passage? All of the chapter of the first Peter, the first chapter, what is in here for you? Joy, glory, hope, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit. 
He's encouraging you. He's pushing you forward. What will your story be? Let's pray. Father, we know that these stories are glorious stories. Lord, we know that you tell the greatest of all stories. And Lord, although we are the protagonist of our own life, we thank you so much, Lord, that we are not the protagonist of this universe. That you, in your wisdom, weave all our stories together into this grand tapestry of grace. That all of our stories serve to tell the greatest story of all, and that is the story of your son, Jesus, killing the dragon and winning the girl. Father, would our lives be used in this great pursuit? Would this great narrative be told not just through our individual lives, but through our community, our families, and indeed, Lord, this entire city? Lord, help us in this wonderful task to disciple the nations and to teach them to observe everything you've commanded us and to bring them into the grace that is theirs to be had in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you suffered for us to win us and to buy us. And Lord, would we not use this to exit stage right and bail on our calling, but to press all the more into both the suffering and the glory that you have waiting for us. And we thank you, Lord, for all these things. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.